on Hill's online Sunday morning service. We gather together every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., both online and in person. Now, in person, we are at our building on Hill Road in the Oak Grove neighborhood. Uh, We gather together. We worship God through song, through prayer, through the study of the Bible, and through gathering together as a community and as a family of faith. We have kids' church, and then we have youth group on Tuesday nights for our teenagers as well. So Tuesday nights at 7, we have youth group. Kids' church is Sunday morning during the Bible study, and uh, we gather together there in person. Now online, at 10.30 a.m., you can, maybe you're on faithonhill.com watching the live stream. Maybe you are listening on Spotify or Apple Podcast uh, to the audio version. Welcome. We find that there are, generally speaking, three types of people that are online with us on a Sunday morning. First type is a person who's normally part of our in-person gathering, but they are out of town, on vacation, or they're, they're under the weather, they're sick. Uh, I know we have some people that have uh, had uh, some health issues recently, and so we love you, uh, we miss you, and we are praying for you. Uh, if you're out of town, we miss you, we'll see you when you're back. The second type of person uh, is the person who's checking out the church. Welcome. Uh, we know from people that have started coming in the last couple years, just about every one of them says that they watched online for a while before they started coming in person. So, Welcome to you, if that's you. If you have any questions, you can email me, adam at faithonhill.com. Now, the third type of person is the person who's online and for whatever reason can't come in person, but they consider this their church. Uh, they, you, know, you, you watch the Bible studies, you're, you're praying with us, you're part of what's going on. And for you, we want to say welcome as well. We have small groups. Uh, most of our small groups have been on summer break, but they are starting back up. You can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com for more information. And we do have a Wednesday night online small group that's going to be starting back up in just a week or two. So uh, Faith on Hill is an online church as well as an in-person church. So if you're the third group, the type of person that is online only, uh, but that's you know not, not able or not ready to be in person, that's fine. We have options for you as well. Now, if you want to support what God is doing here at Faith on Hill, uh, you can go to our website and go to the giving section. Uh, if you want to see more of the, the things that we offer uh, for free, uh, our, our teaching ministry, our podcasts, um, you can go to YouTube, Apple uh, Podcasts, Spotify. You just have to search Faith on Hill, and then you can subscribe there. Uh, if you need prayer, if you need biblical counseling, if you just need somebody to listen to you, uh, you can email office at faithonhill.com and we can get you connected with the right person. We're going to continue our study looking at the life of Elijah uh, this week. Last week, I had COVID, and so we just posted our uh, Starting Points podcast, which usually comes out on Monday. We posted it a day early. And uh, if you've never listened to those podcasts, maybe you found that uh, good and you'll check them out in the future. Uh, but we're glad to be back uh, getting into the story of Elijah. So we'll be in first, or Second Kings, excuse me, Second Kings chapter 1. Well, a minute ago I said we'd be in First Kings, and then I corrected myself, and we've been in First Kings for the whole time. Uh, but now there's a transition. Um, First and Second Samuel are kind of divided up between First Samuel is about the transition from judges and prophets leading Israel to kings leading Israel. And First Samuel is about Samuel transitioning to King Saul, and then Saul 
not really working out, and so God transitioning to David. And then 2 Samuel starts when David takes the throne of Israel and tells his story. First and Second Kings are kind of divided along similar storylines, the transition from David to Solomon, and then 2 Kings kind of goes into the, the division of Israel between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Uh, Second Kings uh, is, is also a transitional shift from Elijah, and now Elisha becomes the primary prophet in Israel. Now, Elijah still has work to do. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago, that just because God had given Elijah his successor and said, hey, your time's winding down, it didn't mean that he was done right then. He had many years left of important, vital ministry to do. Now, today in in chapter one, we're going to look at maybe his, depending on how you count it, this is his last public ministry that he had before God said, your time is done. It says, after Ahab's death, so Ahab has passed away. It's been about six years since Elijah had that big showdown between himself and the prophets of Baal. Uh, Six years since Elijah then fled in fear and ran to Mount Horeb. And then God said, no, I want you to go anoint Elisha to be your successor and these other two guys to be kings over different nations. Six years have passed, but now God has one more thing for Elijah to do. So Ahab the king has died. And Moab rebelled against Israel. Moab, which was a, uh, a nation to the east of Israel, had been independent but subject to Israel. They had to pay taxes or tribute. Um, they, were, they were sort of like, they were their own people. They weren't occupied, but they had to, you know, toe the line. And the king died, and they sensed a moment of weakness. His son, we don't think he's as strong, so we are going to say we're not paying the tributes anymore. We're kicking out your representatives. We are closing the border. We are taking back our national independence. Now, I'm not going to make any commentary on the rightness or wrongness of that. We're dealing with ancient history, um, but, but this is just what happened. And it says that uh, Azahai had fallen through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and injured himself. Now, this could be what caused the rebellion. Uh, There's a new king, and right off the bat, he injures himself seriously. How do you fall through the lattice of the upper room? I think a lot of times when we see the ruins of ancient towns and cities, especially ones in the Middle East, we see these ruined stone buildings. And we think that's what they looked like then. Well, they would have been stone, but they would have been new. They also wouldn't have just been stone. They took wood that would have long since rotted away and and been removed or whatever. And they, they built, you know, if you have kind of a boxy shape stone building, well, on the top of the, on the roof, they would build out of wood these lattices and then they would have vines grow for shade and, and so comfort. So, you know, it's hot, it's summertime, uh, you don't want to be inside the house because that kind of becomes an oven. So you go up on your roof into where you've made these lattice works and you can cool off and just, you know, kind of sit outside. Maybe there's a breeze keeping you cool. Well, it says the king fell through because these things aren't strong. We have lattice work here in our day. And if you push your hand against one or you kind of fall through hard enough, you're going through. And so if it's the king living in the palace and maybe there's a second or even a third story and he falls from there, you could see where he would live but be seriously injured. We don't have, uh, you know, we have modern medicine and things aren't all curable. There are things that are beyond us. On Sunday mornings in person, we pray over people who are sick and who are suffering. And even then, modern medicine cannot 
save them, and so we trust in God. But back then, they didn't even have that. We don't know what his injuries were. Maybe he had internal bleeding, the kind that can only be dealt with by modern surgery. Maybe he had a punctured lung. Um, maybe he uh, was, was crippled in some way that he was never going to get up again. We don't know what his condition was. Maybe it was things that could have easily been dealt with uh, in modern days or even days, you know, 100 or 200 years ago with like what we would still consider primitive medicine, but they could have at least dealt with it better then. You know, it's the kind of thing if you're young and healthy, you could pull through. But, but then they don't have any of that. For most of human history, they had none of this, the kind of the wonders and the, they would even think magic, you know, of modern science. So the king says, send messengers, verse uh, two, and go and consult Baal Zebub, the god of Ekron, to see if I will recover from this injury. Now you might remember this from previous studies we've had. Azahiah's father, Ahab, was the king of Israel. He was a descendant of King David. He was Jewish. But he had married Jezebel. And she was from Sidon up to the north. That was in the, you know, the, the kind of the Canaanite, Moabites, these, these uh, foreign uh, people that did not worship God. They worshiped false idols. And not just like we think, oh, they just, they just believed something different than the Israelites did. No, they, they worshiped idols that involved violence, that involved uh, killing of children at times, that involved human trafficking and, and uh, the abuse of people's bodies. Um, horrible things. Self-harm. We saw that in the showdown between Elijah and the priests of Baal. It was a terrible thing. So he's, his mother is, is devout in her devotion to her gods. And her son has taken that same devotion. Go to Baal Zebub the god of Ekron. Now, Ekron is a name that comes up in the Old Testament often. It's a, it was a powerful city in those days and, and had been for many centuries. Never, never dominant, never the top, but it was a city of importance and significance. And, the, and they had a, a pantheon of gods. So this is the god that was a specifically, the Baal that was specifically associated with Ekron. And go ask there from that god if I will recover from this injury. But, verse 3, an angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask him, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going off to consult Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, this is what the Lord says, you will not leave your bed that you are lying in, you will certainly die. So Elijah went. And when the messengers returned to the king, he asked, why have you come back? And obviously they came back way quicker than he was expecting. And they said, a man came to meet us, verse 6, and he said to us, go back to the king and who sent you and tell him this. This is what Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, the God of your forefathers, the God of your people says. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending messengers to consult Baal-zebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you will not leave the bed you are lying in. You certainly will die. And the king asked, what kind of man was it who came to meet you and told you this? And they replied, he had a garment of hair. Now, when it says hair, it means like animal hair. He had a garment of animal hair and a leather belt around his waist. And the king said that was Elijah the Tishbite. So apparently Elijah had a sort of a uniform. 
you know, very recognizable. You know, Steve Jobs always wore that black shirt and blue jeans and sneakers. Um, you know, there's certain people that just always wear the same thing. They're associated with it. You know, Mr. Rogers, you know, we associate with that, that cardigan vest and the tie. And, you know, there, there's just a, a look and you know, oh, that's Mr. Rogers or that's Steve Jobs. And Elijah was associated with wearing uh, clothing made of animal skins and this leather belt. Uh, so much so that when John the Baptist came on the scene, he dressed in a similar manner as a way of identifying himself publicly as a prophet. He, he was claiming this mantle of Elijah, and Jesus confirmed it and said, you know, if you can accept it, John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah, but he dressed in a certain way to present himself uh, as, as a prophet so people would understand this is who I'm claiming to be. So this was sort of Elijah's uniform. He was very recognizable. What is the message that he is sending to the king? Hey, you're in a bad place. But there is a God who has been working and moving. And even in the king's lifetime, God has worked and moved. Azahiah would have been alive and seen the rain stop at the word of Yahweh's prophet. He would have seen or heard of the destruction of the prophets of Baal, how the the altar was consumed by the fire of God. He would have known that there was a God in Israel who lived and breathed and moved among his people. Not made of human hands, not carved from wood or stone, but in this hour of need, in this hour of trouble, he goes away to foreign false gods in our day. I don't want to come and say, oh, there's a God in America, right? Because we're not Israel. We're not God's chosen people. The church, oh, we're God's people. America is just another country. It's a great country. I've been to a lot of other places. I've lived outside of America. I like living here. I'm thankful to have been born here. But we're not God's chosen people. That being said, in our day, Trouble still happens. Trial still happens. Tragedy still happens. And when the trial, the tragedy comes, people look around, where can I find help? Is there not a God who is still working and moving and changing people's lives? In our own day, we have seen God heal people. I know people who were sick and are now well. And you say, well, medical science can do a lot of things. Sometimes it's through medical science. You know, sometimes we've seen people who just, God, God, you know, used science. Other people miraculously, divinely healed. This is why we pray. I was, uh, we were, I was on staff at a church down in California. And we had a guy in our church who, because of um, these nodules on his throat, and it was likely a... Um, it was probably from his time in Vietnam, whatever he was exposed to over there chemically or whatever, had messed up his throat, and he couldn't talk. He could barely do more than a whisper, and he loved to sing songs to God and to sing worship songs and praise songs to God, and he would sit there and he would pray, and in his quietest whispers, the loudest he could get his voice, he would say, Lord, could I sing to you again with my full voice before I die? And he would pray that. And for a few years, I was at the church, and, and, and one night, it was a special prayer and worship time. And he came up towards the stage. Now, if you've, 
If you've never been a part of a church that does this kind of thing, there are churches and they tend to be a little more charismatic or Pentecostal. Not knocking that, I grew up charismatic, so I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not knocking our, our charismatic friends and brothers and sisters. But if you're on stage and you're leading a meeting, that gets a, like a wild card. Like, why is this person coming on stage and what's going on? Now, with this guy, you know, oh, okay, well, he's not the type to do this. So I, I, I was sitting up there, some things were happening, and I just stopped and I, I, I went down and I just met him at the stairs and I leaned in to hear him because I knew that he could only whisper. And in a full voice, he said, I have something I'd like to share. I'd never heard his full voice before. I said, okay. I said, oh, Gary, absolutely, come on up. Wow. And he began to share how God had healed him. He praised God for God healing his voice. I thought that was a wonderful. And then after the service, thinking God had just miraculously healed him, I said, what happened? Like, did you just wake up and you could talk? And he said, no, I went to the doctor. I said, oh, okay, so the doctor healed you. He said, no, God did it. I said, okay, continue. And he said, I went to the doctor for a normal checkup, but it wasn't my normal doctor. He was, you know, like I said, this probably was all from stemming from his time in Vietnam. And uh, he was at the VA, and it wasn't his normal doctor. And the doctor looked at him and said, hey, do you, do you want us to uh, give you your voice back? And he's like, what are you talking about? The, the doctors have told me this can't be fixed. He's like, no, 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 we, we've actually got a specialist who is just here for this week visiting. Today's his last day, but I bet he could take a look at you. So he takes, takes him over to the specialist in the other building, and this, he just knocks on the door and says, hey, I got a guy. Uh, he's been told that it can't be fixed, but I, you, from what you've told me, you might be able to look at it. And so he looks at it and he says, oh, yeah, I can fix you up like right now. And within an hour, he did a procedure, and the next morning his voice is fully back. Now, here's the question you have to ask yourself. Do we praise God? We praise God no matter what, but do we praise God because Medical science has progressed to a place where we can give a guy his voice back who has that particular condition. Well, part of me says yes. Or do we praise God because medical science has advanced to a place and we live in a day where we can give a guy his voice back who has that particular condition, but we also recognize and acknowledge the divine intervention that a you know, replacement doctor with fresh set of eyes who hasn't written this thing off as incurable, and there is a specialist in town just for that week, and they just happen to connect everything all at once. I do both. I thank the Lord for the day we live in. I also recognize and acknowledge his divine intervention. I know people who had cancer, and God healed them directly, and there is no medical reason other than God's healing. I also know people that you can see God's hand in leading them to a treatment that was effective and leading them into remission. Both are true. The crisis comes, the trial comes, the moment comes, and do we reach out for God's help or do we reach out for, can you help me? Can, can you save me to the false gods of our world? Now, we don't have Baal Zebub. We don't probably, the chances are someone isn't going to go look for a, an, a God that has been carved out of stone or wood. But we do things all the time. I need the wisdom of this world. I need to go and find people who will um, tell me what to do as, as if this world has ever gotten anything right. I'm going to go seek, uh, you know, 
answers in myself. I'm going to look within myself to find answers. Well, I've looked within myself and found that I don't have the answers. So Elijah comes and to these messengers. He says, what are you guys doing? We're, we're the people of Israel. We have a God who moves and speaks and acts in our day. It's not just in times past, but in our day, we see God working and moving. And this leads me to this question. Who are we speaking to? Elijah is not speaking to what we might consider unbelievers. He is speaking to what we might think of as church people. He is speaking to people who should have gone to Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who became a man, Jesus Christ, the God whose Holy Spirit works and moves among his people. I think one of the things that's a challenge for believers in our day is knowing who we're talking to. There are those who talk to people as if they are part of the church and they are not. We have people who aren't just like a generation removed from churches. We have people in our community who are six, seven, eight, nine, ten generations removed. People who don't know what a church really is. People who have no clue what goes on inside a building like ours. Who are we talking to? What are we saying? There are people who are, are acting like Elijah to outsiders. Elijah wasn't going to the people in Ekron. He wasn't going to the people in Sidon. He wasn't going to the people of, of these other countries and saying, what are you doing? He's speaking to people who should have known better. And how we talk depends on who we are talking to or with. If I'm talking to somebody who professes to be a Christian, well, then I expect, oh, if you profess to be a Christian, then I expect that you'll believe in Jesus. If you're talking to somebody who grew up in the church but no longer professes faith, okay, you at least have a framework to understand what I'm saying, but I'm also not going to expect you to live by a Christian since you no longer profess faith. If I'm talking to somebody from outside of the church, has no church context, why would I speak to them expecting that they would understand the context? Elijah speaks in this direct way because he's speaking to his own people, to the people of God. Why are you going outside for help when we know where the strength that we have is from. And so they come back, they give this report to the king, the king figures out that it's Elijah. So it says in verse 9 that he sent a captain of his company with 50 men, and the captain went up to Elijah, and he was sitting on the top of a hill, and he said to him, man of God, the king says, come down. And Elijah answered the captain, if I am the man of God, May fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then fire fell from heaven and consumed the captain and his 50 men. Whoa, that seems harsh. They just tell him to come down and, and he's like, understand what's happening here. He is saying to the captain, look, you've come to take me away because I gave this report that the king didn't like. But you've just said that I am a man of God. You've just said that I'm a prophet speaking for the God of Israel. And yet you've come against me? You've condemned yourself by your own words. If I am truly a man of God, then let God judge you for coming against his prophet. If I'm not, then come up on this hill and take me away. It was his own words that condemned him. You know, John chapter 3, everybody knows John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, in Jesus, will not perish but will have everlasting life. But the next verse goes on to say, For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And John also writes that the world condemns itself, that 
we saw the light, but men rejected the light because we love the darkness for our deeds are evil. What I'm saying is this. We don't need to condemn anyone. Remember I said a minute ago, who are we talking to? Let's say that somebody we knew was involved in, in obvious public, life-dominating sin. Big stuff. Non-debatable, like this is sin. If it's somebody in the church, somebody who professes faith, do we need to condemn them? No. If it's somebody who was once part of the church but no longer professes or, or claims any affiliation, do we need to condemn them? No. If it's somebody outside of the church who has never claimed to follow Jesus, should we condemn them? No. But do they condemn themselves? Yes. A church person who is living publicly, obviously, in, in life-dominating sin is condemning themselves because they say, hey, I believe this, but I'm doing this other thing. A person who was part of the church and has walked away to follow their own ways, they condemn themselves because they know the truth. And a person from the outside who is just doing what they want to do, they condemn themselves because the light of God is in this world. The Holy Spirit is working and moving and calling people. Consider Jesus. The church is present, testifying. The Bible is readily available. Podcasts, YouTube videos, even radio for people that still listen to that. Everywhere the gospel is present. And they condemn themselves. I don't need to condemn anybody. I myself was condemned as a sinner, and I've experienced the grace of God. I don't need to condemn anyone. Elijah is not condemning the captain. He's just saying, look, by your own words, you've said that I am a prophet of God. You've said that I speak for, I represent the God of Israel. If that's true, you've just condemned yourself. Christians, who are we speaking to? And what message are we speaking I don't need, and you don't need, and we don't need to bring condemnation to anyone. We bring the good news of Jesus. We bring the hope of the resurrection. We bring the, the message that there is power, the power of the Spirit of God that changes lives, renews brokenness, takes things that were useless and makes them useful. That's the good news that we preach because Jesus Christ conquered sin and death and rose from the dead three days after he was publicly executed. That's the message we bring. We don't need to bring a message of condemnation. We don't need to bring a message that says, you're going to hell. People condemn themselves. People know the truth. People who reject the truth, people who have heard the truth, they will condemn themselves with their own words, their own actions. So it says, Elijah says this thing, and then the fire comes down and it consumes the captain and his 50 men. What God was saying is, Elijah is speaking the truth for me and you aren't opposing him. You're actually opposing God himself. So the king sent another captain and his 50 men. Now, I actually think this captain is worse than the first because the captain knows what happened to the first group. He says the same thing, man of God. This is what the king says, come down at once. And Elijah says again, verse 12, if I am a man of God, then may fire come down from heaven and consume your 50 men. And the fire came down from heaven and it consumed him and his 50 men. Why did I say that the second was worse than the first? Because the first captain went, said his thing, didn't expect what was going to happen. The second captain knew 
The second captain knew what was coming. He knew what had happened to the first group, and he still opposed God. There are those who have more responsibility before God than others, to whom much is given, much is required. That's biblical. You know, I know the Spider-Man version is with great power comes great responsibility. But Uncle Ben, I think, would agree and say with great knowledge comes great responsibility. The second captain knew what had happened to the first, and yet he and his man still came and opposed somebody that they publicly acknowledged as the representative of the God of Israel. And they met their end. Elijah didn't do a thing. This was directly God bringing his judgment to those who were in rebellion and wickedness. You know, that guy Pergosian and his crew were just uh, probably assassinated, likely. Uh, but they were, they're dead, right? They're gone. There was no mourning him. Like, I, I think a lot of us liked that he had that, like, coup and he was opposing Putin and all that. But he was a terrible person, a murderer, probably a rapist. He was, he was guilty of, of genocide and kidnapping and warmongering and all these horrible things. No one should shed a tear that he's gone. In the same way, I, I am going to guarantee, I just, I'm very, very convinced of this, that these captains and their men were not guys that were going to be sad about, that they had their own crimes, that if you serve that high up in, in, in the wickedness of a, of a court like uh, Ahab's and now Azahias, that they are probably guilty themselves of violence, corruption, extortion, bribery, human trafficking, abuse. These are probably people that this is just how they met their end. This was the outcome of their sin. So the king sent a third captain with his 50 men. And this captain went up and he fell on his knees before Elijah and he said, Man of God, please have respect for my life and the lives of these 50 men, your servants. See, fire has fallen from heaven and has consumed the first two captains and all their men. But now please have respect for my life. And the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid. So Elijah got up and went down with him to the king. This guy came humble and repentant. And God told Elijah, go with him. Even within the wickedness of this world, there are people who are repenting to God. Now, we don't know. Is this captain somebody like Obadiah, who was the chief administrator for Azahiah's father, King Ahab? And we talked about him several weeks ago. And he was a godly man. He was kind of like the Schindler, you know, of his day where he was hiding people that the king was trying to kill. And he was doing his best to, to protect those who were just trying to, like, live in godly lives as the king was trying to kill them. And he was a good guy doing what he could. It's possible that this third captain was also a good man in wicked days doing what he could. Or... He was more honorable than the other two captains. And he looked at the situation and says, I do believe that Elijah speaks for God. And I can see what's happened to these other two captains who have opposed God and his prophet. I'm not going to make that mistake. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to repent of the sins of, of myself and my people. And I'm going to ask God for mercy. And he got it. He was granted that mercy. We live in, in wicked days. 
and the wickedness is all around us and on all sides and in all generations. People, I'll hear older people talk about the sins of the younger generation. I'll hear the younger generation talk about the sins of the older generation. I'll hear people on one side talk about the sins of the people on the other side and vice versa. Friends, it is everywhere. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The question is, will we repent of our sin? Here is this third captain who comes in humility and in honesty, and he's just honest. Look, they were rebelling against God, and they got their thing. I'm asking for mercy, and and I know that I serve a wicked king, but I'm asking that you spare me. And God heard that prayer of faith and responded and told Elijah, hey, you're okay. So Elijah goes with him. Now, in verse 16, Elijah gets there and he's told the king, this is what the Lord, and remember when the Lord is all capital in your Bible, it means Yahweh or Jehovah, the name of God. Um, And they've lost the full spelling of it and there's whole reasons why, and we've talked about it many times before, so I won't get into it, but that's why the translators just go Lord in all capitals. But this is what Yahweh or Jehovah says, because there is no God in Israel, is it because there is no God in Israel that you have come to consult, that you have sent messengers to consult Baal Zebub, the God of Ekron? Because you have done this, you will never leave the bed you are lying in, you will certainly die. And so he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Now because Azahiah had no son, Joram succeeded him as king in the second year of Joram, son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. As for all the other events of Azahiah's reigns and what he did, are they not written in the annals of the kings of Israel? This is the, the writer of 2 Kings just wrapping up Azahiah's life. They're, they're done. He's over. They're not talking with him anymore. So like, we've got all the official stuff in these records. You can go check those out. Here's the thing. He had the opportunity to repent. God was being merciful. It may not seem like it to, to us, but God was being incredibly merciful and gracious to Azahiah. Azahiah was in a moment of crisis. I can't prove it, but I have a suspicion that it was sin that led to his injury. I mean, maybe he was just clumsy. Maybe it was an accident. Maybe he tripped over something and fell through the latticework. But if I had to guess, it was because he was, you know, intoxicated, inebriated. Uh, They had low-level narcotics back then. Maybe he was stoned. Uh, Whatever it was, I I think it was sin that led to his injury. And then he sends these guys to ask these false gods for help. And here God has grace for him. He could have just let Azahiah go and send his messengers and get a response, and then nothing happens because these false gods can do nothing for him. Just as the false gods of our world, success, fame, money, power, uh, you know, ideological purity, whatever it is, these false gods will do nothing for us. And in the same way, God could have, could have just said to Azahiah, you've gone to these false gods, they'll give you the answer, nothing's going to happen and you're going to die anyway. But in God's grace and mercy, God sends Elijah to say, what are you doing? And then when Azahiah rebels against God, not once, not twice, but three times, God is still merciful and continues to send this message of change your ways change. And by the third time, he will not. So Elijah says, because you will not change your ways, you will die. This will kill you. This is no happy ending to this story. Azahiah dies because he will not repent. 
the captains, the first two captains plus a hundred other men die because they will not repent. And you say, well, that's just that vengeful, angry God of the Old Testament. I disagree with that firmly. This is the loving, merciful God who at every step gives every person in this story a chance to repent of their evil, of their wickedness, and of their rebellion. This is a loving and merciful God who interjects himself into the lives of people who are his enemies just as the same way that Jesus Christ interjected himself into this world, that God became a man, Jesus Christ, and lived among people and died to save us, you, me, us, while we were still God's enemies. That hope, that message is there. God didn't need to condemn them. They'd already condemned themselves. They had denied God with their lips, with their actions. They condemned themselves. As believers in Jesus, Christians, we preach a message of hope and forgiveness and life change. We don't need to condemn anyone. If you are a non-believer, the message is a message of hope and life change, but without Jesus, there is no hope. Without Jesus, we have already condemned ourselves to death because we have sinned and the wages of sin, the consequence of sin is death. And we want it that way, by the way. We want there to be justice. I guarantee there were people all over the world when they heard Progrosian was dead and knowing that they had a brother, sister, aunt, uncle, father, child, whoever, that had died either by his hand or because of him. They did not shed a tear. We want justice. We want people to be held accountable for their crimes. Except for ourselves. Jesus made the way for there to be an account for our crimes. That the sins of the world, the sins of Progosian, the sins of Adam, the sins of you, the sins of, of everyone else were placed on him. And he took the punishment as he, fully innocent, died for evil people. And he set people free, set captives free. That's this story. I hope your story has a happy ending. The happy ending that comes from faith and freedom through Jesus. The happy ending that comes from people who change their ways and repent of their sins and their world changes and the world around them changes. Azahiah's story is not a happy one. He would not repent. These two captain stories were not happy ones because they would not repent. But I'll tell you what, that third captain, his story was happy. Because he repented, not just him, but 50 others did not die. Think about this. Was, was every one of those 50 in line with him? I don't know. But because of him, they didn't die. They went home that night. Sons went home to parents. Husbands went home to wives. Fathers went home to children because of the repentance of one man. And it's possible that they themselves also repented as well. And that had a spread out. You can see one man's repentance and it spreads out and it spreads out and it spreads out. And you might say, what difference does one person's life make? It made, the lives, it made a difference in the lives of 50 people and possibly hundreds more by extension as it spread and spread and spread. That's the good news of Jesus. That one person's life can have a ripple effect of healing, of hope, of salvation. And that offer is there for you. And if you have questions about what I mean, you can email me, adam at faithonhill.com. You can show up on a Sunday morning. We're here every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. But I know this. There's nobody that's done the right thing. There's nobody who's not guilty of somebody. Something. There's nobody who doesn't need salvation. 
there's also nobody who is so far gone that God can't save them. There's nobody who's done so many bad things that Jesus can't forgive them. There's nobody who is so broken that the Holy Spirit can't come in and start to heal and change and make something new. The Bible does say that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible does say that the wages of sin are death. But the Bible also says that if any person is changed by Jesus, they are a new creation and the old thing is passed away. It's all new life. That is a great hope that we have. It's a great hope that we live in. It's a great hope that we share with each other and the world around us. God bless you. We'll see you next Sunday at 10.30 a.m. Bye.